All right. Well, good morning, Trinity. So, yeah, as Jeff mentioned, we've come to our final sermon in this series called The Forgotten Torah. So we've learned a ton, haven't we? It's been good. Uh, in the series, we studied the major passages and the messages of, uh, are from Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the Torah, if you don't know that word, it's, um, it's the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Sometimes we call it the Pentateuch. And um, lamentably, we just, we just don't pay a lot of attention to those last three books. But what Jeff and I have tried to convince you of is that this ancient message is incredibly relevant for like modern people. So today's our final sermon. It's at the very end of Deuteronomy, and it's a culmination of everything that Moses has been saying. If you will recall, we've said that Deuteronomy is like a series of farewell speeches or sermons by Moses to this next generation. That is, this, this next generation of Israelites are about to fulfill their mission to go into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy functions kind of like a, like a pre-op briefing, like a briefing. As many of you know, in my former life, I was an officer in the U.S. Air Force. And more specifically, I was an intelligence officer. So I had the privilege of working with some really amazing pilots. And I worked specifically with C-130s, a kind of plane. Well, after September 11th, many of my pilots had to fly these really dangerous missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. But just before every mission, the crews had to come to my office to get a briefing. That's what we did. So even though they are extremely competent pilots, they needed to understand what they were up against. So guys like me would, would help them understand the terrain, help them understand which parts of their mission uh, would be, they would be more vulnerable. I would explain the kinds of threats in the, in the theater, the types of missiles that could shoot planes out of the sky. I'd explain the performance of those, of those missiles and how they could more, most effectively fly their plane to mitigate those threats. Now, when I gave these kinds of uh, briefings, everyone wanted front row seats, right? No one slept. Everyone was super locked in because they realized the information that I was providing to them was the difference between life and death. So guys like me were saying, hey guys, here, here are the risks you can do this, you can crush this mission, but you have to listen carefully, right? Now, I don't want to say that my words were life to them, but that is most certainly what God is saying to Israel through Moses. Moses is giving Israel a briefing before going into the land, and life and death is on the line. Now, here's what I want you to hear. I know this passage that we're about to study is 3,500 years old, but these ancient words are still the difference between life and death. I know I've got my work cut out for you convincing you of that, but let's listen carefully to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, because I think it's going to surprise us a little today. So here's what we're going to learn today. The journey into life is both too easy and too hard. It's too easy and too hard. So those are our two headings that are going to help us understand and apply this passage. Without further words of introduction, would you please, in reverence to God's word, stand with me. 
This is in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in your Bibles, but also in your bulletin. Keep this out. This is very useful to have this bulletin. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. And length of days, and you, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but those words will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So in 1984, the first movie I ever went to, went to the cinema for my very first time. Guess what movie I watched? The never-ending story. Now, warning, if your memory of that movie is magical, do not try watching it again. It will ruin your memory of it. It's both bad and a touch creepy, honestly. I still can't decide if Falcor is a dog or a dragon. Creepy. Uh, nevertheless, um, I remember being captivated by the story. So basically, it's set in this magical world called Fantasia. Fantasia is ruled by this little girl called the Childlike Empress. Uh, but this world is being destroyed by this force called the Nothing. And the only thing that can stop the Nothing is a human boy who gives the Childlike Empress a new name. And so this, uh, this young little like Native American boy named Atreyu is commissioned to go on a quest to find this human boy who can give her a name. And that's the movie. That's the plot, right? It's a quest. At, at one point, Atreyu has to pass through, uh, has, has to pass through these um, two large sphinxes, like what you might see in ancient Egypt. Uh, but he is warned that only the true in heart, the really, truly confident can pass because these sphinxes uh, otherwise will shoot you with lasers coming out of their eyes. I'm not making this up. That's really what happens. Um, uh, he does it. Atreyu is noble and worthy. He was pure in heart. He was the brave one who could pass through without getting killed. The never-ending story is a tale with a narrative arc called a quest. 
A quest is a plot device used in mythology in which a hero has to prove his worthiness through a, a long journey with many tests and trials uh, in order to receive something of value. So like the Wizard of Oz, for instance, Dorothy, uh, Lion, Tin Man, Scarecrow, they have to go on a journey, right, to, to get the broomstick from the Wicked, Wist, Wicked Witch of the West, right? Uh, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. These are all quest stories, right? Now, these quest narrative arcs have been around for thousands of years, and in fact, all of the mythology from ancient cultures used quest stories to explain their gods and their histories. Um, Egyptian and Mesopotamian mythology, like Gilgamesh, high school, remember everyone? Uh, were all quest stories. So essentially, people in those cultures asked, what is the secret to the universe? How do I get divine knowledge about the mysteries of the universe. And these cultures answered with their folklore about a person who is particularly noble or gifted or pure. They had to climb the highest mountain or solve riddles by the gods or whatever to, to, or to reach their gods or to get some desirable item, some holy grail, something that would give them the life that they wanted or maybe even eternal life. Well, the land that Israel is going to walk into, Canaan, was filled with local de deities and their corresponding mythology and folklore. They were going into societies and cultures that said, divine wisdom, the secret to life, is not accessible to everyday people. Only a few truly noble, exceptional people could go on these quests and acquire the sublime information. And usually, if you did it, that's what made you the king or the ruler, right? The sage. But Moses, in our passage, says, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. So he says in verse 11, look there, it says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, and neither is it far off. Verse 12, he says, it's not in heaven such that you got to recruit someone to go on a quest and bring it down for us to tell us what to do. And then in verse 13, look at it there in your text. Verse 13 is a very interesting thing to say. Moses says, it's not beyond the sea. It's not beyond the sea. Now, the sea in those ancient cultures was a metaphor for like sheer chaos. Sometimes it was analogous to the realm of the dead. But Moses says, no one needs to take a journey to the realm of the dead to come back and tell us what God said. No one's got to do that. Rather, verse 14, God's word, the secret to life is very near you. No quest is required. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may do it. You don't have to go anywhere. God came to you. And that's what's pumping through Israel's like collective memory. The entire universe cannot contain the God of Israel, Yahweh, and yet Yahweh moved into the neighborhood, right? God's presence and his commandments present with, not, not in heaven or beyond the sea, but present with the children of Israel were explicit acts of God's free grace. 
They didn't have to prove their worthiness through some quest. They didn't earn it. It was just a gift of grace. God simply gifted them these words. He just gave them the secret to life, as they would have understood. Now, I don't know if you feel the implication of all that, but the original audience most certainly would have. And here it is. That's too easy, right? The divine will for humanity requires nothing but an open heart. Every other religion in the world requires feats of bravery, travel, nobility, but not with Israel's God. Not with Israel's God. And let me just kind of like bring this up. Let me apply it to us. The simplicity, the accessibility, and the grace intrinsic to Christianity has always been one of the main reasons, the main obstacles for why people don't take Christianity seriously. There are a lot of uh, forms to this general distaste for grace. Perhaps you've heard something like this. So, Ronnie, uh, let me see if I get this. You're saying that a person can live an awful life murdering people and then on his deathbed give his life to Jesus and you're saying there is salvation for that person? Grace is uncomfortable, isn't it? Well, isn't that convenient? I wish everything were that easy, right? That's right. There is no quest for these free words of life. And we shirk under the reality that God's words, God's life is too accessible. You can be nailed on a cross on the brink of death, look to your right, see Jesus and say, I want the secret to life. You, Jesus, are the secret to life and Jesus gives it to you. It's too accessible. It's too accessible. All right, let me use an example that's a little bit less life and death here. Um, the ease and accessibility of God's words of life bothers us in other ways too. So presently, follow me with this. Presently in our society, we have desacralized or we have removed the sacred status of everything in our culture. It has left our culture largely aimless. Nothing is sacred anymore. Our roles as men and women, our histories, our jobs don't matter beyond the fact that they simply represent a paycheck. We have unhinged ourselves from those things that we have labeled cultural hegemony, right? So we're completely free. Nothing is sacred. But now there's this like vacuum of identity and purpose. So many people that we love are that we love so much, are looking for answers. It's like cosmic homelessness. They're looking for words of life. When they come to us, we say, bro, check yourself into the Vanderbilt in Condado. Hop on the bed, roll over, open up the nightstand, pull out the Gideon's Bible. There you will find what you're looking for. And they say, we're crazy. You're, you're crazy. That's that is too easy. That's like too accessible. So instead, our loved ones go on quests. They pay thousands of dollars to fly to the deepest and farthest reaches of the world, to the hills of Tibet. They pay thousands of dollars for meditation guides. Looking for what? For the secret. This elusive peace. Some of, you, some of them won't make this trip. 
Rather, they seek out our cultural priests and our cultural gurus. We shove our money into the pockets of guys like Deepak Chopra or Tony Robbins because those figures have made the voyage, the quest. They are worthy. They've discovered the mysteries, the mysterious secrets of the universe. We perceive that these cultural priests are the only ones who can unlock these secrets. We all, we all think that it must be, it must be impossible for us. We think that the secret of life is the fruit of a quest, and it must be too hard. And that's why grabbing the Bible in your hotel room is just laughable. It's like laughable. And that intuition is not just for secular people, church. Like, we do this kind of stuff too, right? Instead of trusting God's word, we look to people who we perceive to have a special connection, right? These are the ones who have a, a fresh word from the Spirit, the only they know. These are the ones who have discovered that the Bible is like a series of symbols, and when you assign a number to the Hebrew character, they can be solved with Bible codes, which then can be translated to tell some new mysteries to the universe. Like, I'm not making this stuff up, y'all, right? Y'all know this. We demand that they tell us of these new revelations, and this is all crazy, of course. Heaven forbid you just open up the Bible and read it the old-fashioned way, right? Well, in this briefing to Israel, before entering the land, God is saying to Moses, you have the map into life. It's not too hard, and neither is it far off. It's already in your heart. It's in your mouth. Trinity, those words are for you. Those words are for you too. Don't allow the gracious ease or the accessibility of God's words to make you skeptical. Don't buy that narrative. Well, let's transition. Since no quest is necessary, does that mean doing these words of life is easy? Actually, although the words are surprisingly simple, it's quite hard. Uh, one of the things that I love about the Bible is its honest and even sober vision of um, the human heart. So the Bible is like incredibly realistic um, about life in this world. This is quite different than other religious books. When you uh, study the sacred writings of other religions, the prophet or the followers of that religion are, are portrayed as quite exemplary people, Right? I mean, like, look at them. Look at these models, right? And the Bible is like the exact opposite. The so-called heroes of the Bible are a train wreck. So Moses, who's actually writing Deuteronomy, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. And do you know why? Because he threw a total fit against God, taking a staff and like beating a rock, trying to get water to come out of it while God is helping him. It's absurd. Uh, when my son, Micah, was just a little buddy, around three years old or so, he was like totally into trains. So one time we were in a terminal in an airport, and he saw the tram, right, train, tram, and he started screaming, train, train. And I thought, this is going to be great. Micah gets to ride on a train on our way to the next concourse. So we board the tram, and there are these like huge windows so that you can see out. Well, through the window, you can see a different train, different tram on a parallel track, uh, but it's going in the opposite direction, right? Can you follow me? So we board this train. 
which is exactly what my son Micah wanted, but he sees the other train, and then that train leaves, and my son loses his mind. Like, he loses his mind. While he's on the train, he's angry at me for not letting him ride the train. You see, this is the kind of absurdity that you expect in a three-year-old, but you get in Moses, who writes Deuteronomy, right? And you see this, like, all over the Bible. I mean, all of these guys are a mess, and this theme continues even to the New Testament. Peter, spineless coward. Paul, murderer. That's unfortunate. In fact, Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he says these words. I love these. This is one of my favorite cha- uh, chapters in Romans chapter 7. He says, this is Paul talking about himself. He goes, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't do the good thing that I want, but the evil thing I don't want is what I keep doing. That's super honest. Why do I share this with you? Because Moses says, hey, listen, guys, this is very simple. This is Moses talking to Israel. This is simple. Verse 15, he says, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. 16, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. Verse 17, But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn to worship other gods and serve them, I declare you today that you shall surely perish. And the whole message of Deuteronomy can be summed up that way. If you disobey, you get death. And if you obey, you get life. And life here, of course, is not biological life. That's, they got that already. They're, t- they're talking about spiritual life. They're talking about full, a fullness, a full spiritual life that you'll thrive and flourish. In other words, in other words, the secret to the universe, it's so simple that it's offensive, is obey God and you will live a full and satisfying life. So what's the problem? The problem is, we won't do it <laughs> because it's actually incredibly hard. On one hand, the secret to life is so inclusive. No matter what home you come from, no matter your past mistakes and sins, no matter your socioeconomic status, none of that matters. What matters is that today you love the Lord your God by walking in his ways and keeping his rules. But even though it is super inclusive, Super simple in that sense. It is too hard because it means, let me translate this for you, what it means is that you lose control of your life. You don't get a vote anymore. Follow follow me with this, you guys. If God gave you life, if everything you have, to include the air that is coursing through your lungs, is an absolute gift from God, not because you earned it, but because of his grace, then you owe him your love and loyalty and absolute thankfulness. Your life is not yours anymore. You belong to God, and God can ask of you anything. Nothing is off limits. I don't see anyone signing up for that. 
Not that we don't want to. It's that even if we want to, we don't do what we know we should do. And we turn our backs on God. It is too hard. It's too hard. Can I show you the key to this whole passage? Moses says, he says, listen, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. And then in verse 20, guys, he drops a bomb. Look there at verse 20. He says, for he, the Lord, is your life. The Lord is your life. You see what's happening here? It's not that the Lord is showing us a path. He is the path. He is our life. This is so radically distinct from every religion in the world. In every world system, to include human secularism, a person must perform. In religion, you have a prophet or a spokesman who says, do these things. Do this eightfold path. Live up to these five pillars of the faith. Do this quest and you will have life. In humanism, we're given seven steps to life, success, and happiness, or three steps to get your best life now, or something, right? Some quest, some path. But with Christianity, God is your life. What does that mean? Well, in Romans 10, the Apostle Paul takes this passage that we're reading tonight in Deuteronomy 30, and he interprets it. We have, there's a, this was our New Testament reading today. Look there in your bulletin at the New Testament reading and follow this with me. Follow this logic. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, a performance, a quest, right? <laughs> right, you see that? That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Do these things and you live. But, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, to send someone up there to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss, into the sea. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Send someone down to the dead, bring him back. In other words, there's no one going on a quest to bring the wisdom of Christ to you, right? Verse 8, what does it say? The, the word is near you, in your mouth. And in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth, this is so easy, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This is like so easy and so hard. Have you ever felt like, I don't know, like I don't, I don't know if I want that. I mean, it's free, but it will cost me everything. No quests, no quests, but it costs me everything. How, like, how do we get our hearts there? Like, how do we get there? Here's how. The gospel. Jesus 
Listen, you guys, if you've been daydreaming, bring it in right here. It's Jesus who went on a quest. We didn't ascend to him. He came to us. He went, on a, he went on a quest. He passed the test. He was proven noble and worthy. Not us. Him. The secret to life is that he is the secret to life. He doesn't point you to some path. He points you to himself. God became our life, and he gave himself to us. If this is true, if what I am saying is true, this changes everything, doesn't it? Like, if I'm right about this, this changes everything. Let me just finish with a parable that Jesus himself would tell. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who found a great treasure hidden in a field. And so he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. A man went on a quest. He found a great treasure worth everything. So he hid it. He ran off with great joy, sold everything. He spared no expense to buy that field to have that treasure. He'd do anything to have it. Are you listening? I'm not talking about you. This parable is not about you. I'm talking about your Savior. Jesus left heaven He went on a quest. He found you with great, uncontrollable, overwhelming joy. Sold everything. He gave up everything. He gave up his own life to buy you, to purchase you with his own blood. Because you are the treasure he absolutely cannot live without. Choose life. Christ is your life. Amen.